Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That can be found on page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Again, that's Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll begin in verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood there on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who hears has ears to hear, let him hear. Very good to see you this morning. Before we get started with the lesson, I I did receive a a last-minute announcement here. Sarah Baker, she's fallen, and she was taken to the hospital at Lebanon, but she's on her way to Vanderbilt at this moment uh, in transit. So I'd like to have a prayer before we get into the Word of God uh, on Sarah's behalf. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you and we thank you again in this moment. And uh, we know that you are an awesome God. We know that uh, you care for us, for your children, for those in the world. uh, You will that they would come to you also. Uh, You placed a great value upon us. And Lord, we we ask you uh, in the name of Jesus and for the sake of your kingdom right now that uh, you comfort Sarah, her family members, that you bless the doctors and the hospital staff, uh, moving her, uh, watching over her, keeping care for her. Lord, we pray uh, your measure of strength and peace and healing in that moment. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Kind of hard to believe I am up here standing on the very spot where just a few hours ago Todd and Jana were married. (laughs) Uh, But I won't change my Facebook status to preaching. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. I felt bad for John. Because in the bulletin, I just had given Tammy just the text of Matthew 13. And he came to me and he said, what do you want me to read for uh, scripture reading this morning? And I said, oh, no, I forgot about that. Uh, but we're going to go over quite a, quite a bit of material uh, today. Not Matthew 13 word for word, but uh, I'll get to that a little bit later on. I think it was the mid to late 90s. I don't remember how old I was. But I had a bike, and one of the favorite things that uh, I liked to do was, you know, me and my brother would ride bikes. Sometimes Dad would join us, and we'd go around town a little bit. Uh, nothing's better than sightseeing Lebanon, Tennessee on a bicycle. You ought to try it. But we're riding along. It's getting dark. It's time to head back home. Uh, we are on Highway 70. We're about to approach uh, the Zips Corner Market on Carver Lane in 70. 
you know, just down the road from our house. And before you get to that Zips, there's a, there was a car lot there. And the lot had just been repaved, so there was no cars on it. And this was my chance to just see what I had in my legs and just go for it, you know. Uh, so I was, I was pedaling along as fast as I could through this parking lot. And all of a sudden, I hear my dad behind me, who I was smoking at this time, by the way, uh, yell out, you know, John Michael, stop, you know, hold up. And I didn't know why he was yelling this, but, you know, he's my dad, so I better listen to him. So I put on the brakes as hard as I could, and about three feet in front of me was, was rope where they had roped off this uh, parking lot. I'm really glad that day that I heard and I understood the words that my dad spoke to me. His words were not just sounds. They were not just for entertainment or for fun. They conveyed a reality that was very real, that I was rapidly approaching, and that I was very much unprepared for. Matthew 13 begins on page 861 of your pew Bibles. And this morning, I want us to to study these seven parables that Jesus uses to explain the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13. I want us to bundle these seven parables together in one complete picture of kingdom reality. And parables are often called earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And I want, to, I want to take that and agree with it and take it a step further. I hope today that our study leads us to the realization that the stories Jesus told speak of a coming reality that is more real than the real life we are experiencing right now. The parables in Matthew 13... They are earthly stories that tell us of a true reality known as God's kingdom. By the time we reach Matthew chapter 13, if we're reading through the gospel in order, we see that Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. We see that he's been tempted in the wilderness and he has come out successful in that endeavor. We see that he has called his disciples. He's delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He's cleansed lepers, healed sickness, calmed a storm, cast out demons, made the lame walk, raised the girl from the dead, caused the blind to see, sent out 12 apostles, healed on the Sabbath, and challenged the religious leaders who had serious power in his day. And we thought we had a to-do list. It's safe to say that by this time in Matthew 13, Jesus had made his presence known in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and Samaria. And in the opening verses... Verses 1 and 2, so many people had gathered to hear Jesus teach by this time that he had to get in a boat, go out into the sea, and preach to people who were on the beach while he was offshore. And so here at the beach, we learn about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? And how do you tell someone what the kingdom of heaven is? Jesus decides to explain this, and rather in a series of rather ordinary and, and uh, just regular stories and images. We pick up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. That same day, oh, verse 3, John Michael, there we go. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, 
and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. If you go down a little bit more, we get the second parable after an explanation and a small discourse on the first. We get to verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. It gets a little bit briefer in verse 31. He puts another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that that a man has took and sown in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid and three measures of flour till it was all leavened. There's an explanation. And then in verse 44, we pick up with another image. And by this time, Jesus is not even, uh, Matthew's not even putting in the note that Jesus is telling them a parable. So it's just going faster and faster. In verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's an eighth parable at the end, but we'll get to that later. So from these words we gather quite an image, quite a a spectacle about something which is invisible to plain sight. From this group of stories we learn things like this the kingdom of heaven is like seed that is sown and expected to yield a crop the kingdom is like crop that is harvested and one day when the time is right it will be sorted the kingdom is like a tree that begins microscopic but it grows steadily and rapidly the kingdom is like leaven it can't be noticed when mixed in with flour but it influences everything in the batch the kingdom is like treasure that is worth more than the field in which it is buried. Kingdom is like a valuable pearl worth everything a merchant has. The kingdom is a net that covers a large area and gathers up all kinds of things. These images offer us some clarity and they offer us some confusion 
at the same time. Jesus told all these stories to the crowd on the beach and they didn't understand. Even his disciples had to ask him to explain a couple of them and they didn't understand at first either. The crowd and Jesus' disciples were having the hardest time comprehending the most elementary (laughs) illustrations. Why is that? I think the answer is in verses 10 through 16. The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus says to, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but it has not been given to them. The them that Jesus is referring to is Israel. Israel, God's people, had a history of hearing God's word proclaimed. They heard it from God himself. They heard it from prophets sent from God. They heard it from other nations. They heard it from scripture and so on and so on. They often heard, but they failed to understand. They saw miracles performed. They saw prophets prophesying. They saw nations lead them away into captivity. They saw God lead them back out of captivity. They saw the temple restored. They saw the walls rebuilt, and they saw the law of Moses rediscovered and reinstituted. They saw, but they failed to perceive. It wasn't much different in Jesus' own day. By this time, Jesus has, has had John the Baptist prepare the way for him. God's Spirit descend on him. He has shown that he is Lord over disease and sickness and death and nature and storms and the Sabbath and demons and everything over and over again. And people literally saw him do mighty works. And they failed to see who he truly was. People literally heard his great teaching and they said that they were astonished because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but they failed to hear his message. Why did they do this? They could not accept the reality that Jesus spoke of in story form. They were too caught up in real life. If you look at verses 53 through 58, we don't have time to read it, but you read this whole discourse on the kingdom of heaven, and then this is what people say. They ask questions like, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? Are not all his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? He saw him teach and do miraculous things time and time again. They heard him use the simplest illustrations, and then they took offense at him and refused to believe. And no matter what extraordinary things Jesus did for all the crowds and the multitudes, they would always just see him as an ordinary person. Jesus could never be the son of God because he was too busy at the moment being the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, the brother of four brothers and many sisters. To unbelievers, he... He did things you only read about in stories. He explained things in stories, and therefore his identity as the Son of God, the anointed one, the one who was to save Israel, was also a story. Will we do the same thing? The text begs the question, will we be like the people at the end of Matthew 13. We live in a world where God's word can be purchased for cheaper than the cost of a fast food meal. We live in the Bible Belt South. There's a church on every corner. If you don't believe me, just get out of here and walk 20 yards. 
We have schedules and deadlines and tasks and errands and sports and weddings and funerals and births. People come and go. Things move on. The sun goes down and the sun rises the next day. People predict that the world will end and it doesn't. Life can be so ordinary and so endless, it seems. Will we do what unbelievers in that situation did and allow things at present to squelch the way things will be one day. What's the reality? Let's check these seven parables again quickly and see what this coming reality holds. Number one, the parable of the sower reveals to us that God's kingdom is something that has come into the world already. It has been sown into the hearts and minds of people in the form of words. The kingdom of heaven has been planted in the hearts of men through the words of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus picked up the same mission of preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word made, and it still makes. Direct contact with the soil, that's us, with people. And it calls for change in people's lives. Changes in word and deed and heart. And some people are accepting this word and some people are not accepting it. And that is the reality that the story conveys. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven tell us of this reality, that the kingdom is something that is seemingly small and ordinary, but also that it has great power and influence, and it is growing rapidly and in an unstoppable way. And to deny this this reality that Jesus is talking about would be as foolish as trying to separate yeast out of bread. It's trying to separate mustard seeds out of an entire field. It's impossible, and we can't stop it. That is the reality. The parables of the wheat and the weeds and the parable of the net tell us of this reality, that although it is seemingly far off, there will be a day of separation between the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked. For now the children of God and the children of the kingdom of Satan, the people of the world, are growing together for now. It tells us that if one is is not of God, then one is of the world. And if you're not if you if you're of the world, you're of the devil. If you're of the devil, that if you keep going that way, separation will come. And if separation occurs, it will be separation from God for eternity. I really wanted to say that part in a a more (laughs) exciting theatrical way, but that is the reality. Finally, the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value tell us of this reality, that the kingdom of heaven must be sought after, and when we find it, and we will, It will be worth everything that we have and more. That the kingdom of heaven is precious and unique and valuable. This is the reality. Where we're going with these stories is not difficult to understand. From these parables we know that the kingdom of heaven is here. From these parables we know that it is here to stay and it is only increasing and not decreasing. And finally, we know that all who are not of the kingdom will be separated. In the parable of the net, God says the angels will come out. Can we know anything more important 
than the truths we get from these stories. The ultimate reality leads us to an ultimate response. We must choose. We must choose to join the kingdom, to remain in the kingdom, and to tell others about the kingdom. And the first, the first decision of joining is, is one we make one time. The, the two later decisions are ones that even the most righteous children of God have to choose every day. Let's read Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 and 52. When he's done telling them all this, Jesus says, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Once we understand Jesus' seven parables on the kingdom of heaven, he gives us a parable about what we will be like. We will be like scribes who bring out treasures new and old. We will bring out the teachings of Jesus once we understand the words that we've heard from him. We'll bring out his living example in our life. And also we will bring out those constant old time promises that God has made to his children and followers since the foundation of the world. We'll bring these treasures out for others to see and to experience and to possess. And sometimes we make following Jesus too complicated. We make it too much about learning technical things about the Bible, about a flurry of activity with little time for thanksgiving and reflection and prayer. We make it about standards and expectations we were never meant to strive for and so on. But isn't it interesting in Matthew 13 at the end of the chapter that Jesus charges his disciples with the task of being trained in the kingdom of heaven? How? By listening to and understanding parables. He didn't charge them to come up with some deep intellectual theory on the Bible, on Scripture. He didn't charge them to to reach a level of higher, more mysterious, uh, more technical knowledge. He didn't charge them to do extensive psychological research on what attracts people to a congregation or, or a church or God's Word. He didn't charge them to develop a decade-long complex strategy for church growth and vitality. He gave them the Holy Spirit for that. What did he charge them to do? He charged them to understand and to tell others the stories that he told them. He asked them to do things elsewhere in the gospel like washing feet, being the least, giving someone a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, loving neighbors, going into your closet alone to pray, not worrying about things, rejoicing that your name is written in the book of life. The Son of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And of all the topics he could broach, he conveyed eternal truths through stories of farming, of fishing, of baking, harvesting, buying and selling, things we do every day. But those ordinary stories convey a a reality that is so real, it trumps anything we can experience right now with our five senses. A couple of weeks ago, I I wrote a a bulletin article on The Messenger. This sermon's been on my mind for a while. It kind of came out there early. But the argument was this. 
The present reality is not always going to be here, and it will not always be the way it is. Two, the only things that last beyond this present reality, the only things that are eternal that we see in creation right now, is the word of God and the souls of people. And three, if those two things are the only things that will outlive what we see and experience right now, why do we give so much priority to things that don't last for a decade or a year or a season? If God's word and souls of people are the only things that last beyond this life, what are we doing to invest in God's word and people? If you could come up with an umbrella theme for the middle of Matthew, it would be this one word, discipleship. Discipleship is being like the one of whom you are a disciple. Discipleship is being like Jesus in every detail for the Christian. And think of this, if it's important for the Son of God to leave heaven and to come into God's creation in the form of human flesh for the purpose of reaching people with God's love, God's grace, God's truth, God's message, God's forgiveness, to talk to people one-on-one, to wash feet, to be humiliated so that God could be glorified. Isn't it important for his disciples who seek to be like him in every detail? Isn't it important for them, for us, to prioritize our life so that we go out in our flesh form into God's creation? Why? To glorify ourselves? No. To reach others with God's love, which, with God's grace, with God's truth, with God's message. To have one-on-one conversations with people. To be content with pleasant circumstances or hardships, whichever it is. Whichever one fulfills God's mission. It was important for God to reach others. In fact, he made that plan before he even started all of this. It's important for us to reach others. I would hate to stand before the Lord on the final day and these parables tell us the true nature of the final day. And all I could say was, God, I had too many other things to do. I had too many other things to be for too many other people, too many possessions to maintain and take care of, too many errands, too many, too many, too much. I'd hate to say that I had too many, too much to stop and realize for a moment the value of my own soul, the value of the soul of another person. I would hate to stand before God in the last day knowing that it was explained to me in simple stories and to say, there you go, God, there is my excuse for ignoring your son. I'd much rather suffer a little more here, be inconvenienced, Miss out on a few things the world says I need to see and that are extraordinary. Live on a little less and be written off as a Jesus freak. If that all together meant standing before God on the last day, being able to say, Father, I spent my time and my energy for the reality of your kingdom for the value of my own soul, for the value of the souls of others. I didn't do everything I wanted to do, but I did everything that was important. And to me, that is everything. Last thought. I would much rather give up some of this reality 
for the real life Jesus talks about in stories. For the guaranteed promised reality of hearing the Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I would rather hear that and sacrifice some now than to sacrifice God's kingdom on the worthless altar of hearing others say, Well done, good job, you impress me, you bring me fulfillment. Jesus' words in Matthew 13, verse 51, are the closing words of this sermon. Do you understand these things? We've all heard them. Do we understand these things that Jesus has taught us? Investing in souls includes your own soul. This morning, you have the opportunity to respond, to show that you understand the words that you have heard You can respond in obedience for the first time ever, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repenting of your sins, being baptized into Christ, and therefore receiving all the blessings that are in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have already obeyed the gospel, but you feel you've forgotten what's most important and you don't want to stand before God in that day, admitting that still, you can change that now. Whatever needs you have, whatever prayer request you want to bring, whatever you are facing, we have a high priest that has faced the same thing and